Thank you very much, David. Um, great to see you all. Um, I'm hoping, um, I know this is quite a familiar story. Um, any of you hear this at Sunday school and remember way, way back? You're going to be the toughest ones to communicate with this morning because you already know it all. So I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you uh, for your word. And I pray this morning that we'd be aware that it is your living word and that you'd open our minds and our hearts that, that we would have teachable spirits this morning and wills to respond to your prompting. Amen. Right. When I was reading this passage, um, I, it suddenly made me think, um, who would I really, really want to meet? Who would I really want to meet? Now, um, you know, you get one choice. It can be anyone throughout history. But if you could fix up a meeting with anyone in person, like face-to-face, who would that be? And I didn't allow this at the earlier service, but you can even shout out if you know who that is. Has anyone got any names of someone that they'd really like to meet face-to-face? Shakespeare. Elizabeth I. Nelson Mandela. Okay. You want to meet El Nelson? He's going to be busy, Nelson, isn't he? Anyone else? I, I'm, I struggled with it. So I had Nelson on my list, but I might be a little bit busy, so I didn't know whether I could fit him in. <laughs> Similarly, Obama. You know, if he was strolling past, just maybe. See, I'm not that impressed with important people, actually, because they've all got feet of clay just as I have. And, and with some people, you just sort of think about them. There are a few people on, on the list that I probably would, like in one of my humbler moments, benefit from meeting and listening to. But you have to be quick. You know, they, those, they happen very, very often. But there are a few people... And I'm not going to get you to shout out, just in case they're present. But is there anyone here that you'd really not want to meet (laughs) face to face? Am I the only one that sort of thinks like that? Is there anyone, if you um, saw them coming, this doesn't happen to me in Claygate very often, but might just take a wider path or a wider berth or in a shop, they'd be looking very intently at magazines they shouldn't really be looking at just so they don't catch my eye. Well, there is probably someone, I'm going to share this name with you. So it's up to you whether you tell anyone, but there is someone that I really, really am didn't want to meet, and didn't want to meet for a very, very long time. And actually went out of my way not to meet this particular person. And his name is Jesus. I spent most of my teenage years not really wanting to meet with Jesus. Now, that might sort of puzzle some of you. But the way I got it, like I had plenty to say sorry to him for, but I had plenty that I quite enjoyed doing and didn't want to give up. So my idea of meeting Jesus face to face and me changing, whoa, that was a little bit too costly. I wasn't ready for that 
at all. I'd be surprised if there weren't quite a few of you here that have been in that place. Or we play a little bit of hide and seek with the Lord. We sort of meet with him on our terms rather than his. I was brought up in a clergy home. My brothers had the same opportunity as me to hear about the Lord. I think all of us in our different ways played hard to get. Uh, we were confirmed. So we'd have made promises at an age that we were old enough to know what we were saying about turning to Christ, about repenting of our sins, about renouncing evil. And I don't doubt the um, genuineness of what we did, but it didn't really make a lot of difference in my life because in teenagers' years, it's, it's not extreme, so you don't have to worry. But even if it was extreme, that would just tell you a message about God's grace in my life. So if you've done some extreme stuff, for those of you um, that need to be forgiven of much, surely, surely you'd be even more grateful. But my brother Chris, who died over two years ago, he had a plan. See, he was a little bit disenfranchised with the church. He'd met one or two Christians that he thought might be hypocrites. I don't know whether you've come across any of those. He went round the world um, visiting different churches. He married an American, ended up in America. And actually, he was a little bit switched off by some of the um, uncaring, uncompassionate um, I need to be very careful about my prejudice here. But maybe just the way that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is expressed and received. See, I don't recognize some of that stuff. But you thought, probably thought, well, maybe lots of Christians think like that. Anyway, Chris had a plan. As I said, he died just over two years ago. But his plan was he was going to wait until the very last minute to give his life to the Lord. I don't think that's a very good plan at all. But as I've been thinking about this, um, I'm sort of, um, I was taken to Luke chapter 12. And I'm not suggesting that this is Chris, my brother, but I'm suggesting it's something that we need to be alert to. Luke 12, the parable of the rich fool who had little barns and built bigger barns and bigger barns and bigger barns. Didn't really want to meet with Jesus. Luke 12, 20. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you'll get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with whoever stores things up for themselves, but is not rich towards God. I want to be careful about drawing a parallel. And um, I looked a text up this morning, but Chris was very happy to have my prayers. 
But he actually went into hospital um, on the day he was moving out of a house. And he didn't get to see the bigger barn, the bigger house that him and his wife were moving into. This very night, the Lord could take any of us. We need to be sure and confident that we have our salvation in him. You see, all of us have a deep need to make, meet with Jesus, like he made us and God's made us to need to do that. And some of us have a deep longing to meet with Jesus. The two things are different. The Bible has examples of people with different motivations. Some of us have a casual interest. We look in the scripture, there were people of positions of power and authority. We'll hear about Pilate, we'll hear about Herod in the next few days. They were keen to meet with Jesus, a little bit fascinated. You know, maybe Jesus would do a little trick for them or something. Some are there to be entertained. Others in the Bible, maybe they have a deep desperation to meet with Jesus. It's like the woman who was bleeding for, I don't know how many years she tried everything. Oh, well, I give Jesus a bit of a chance. I don't think Jesus minds. Sometimes we have to get to an end of ourselves before we're ready to surrender our lives fully to him to be saved, to find salvation. Maybe it's healing. Maybe it's deliverance we need. Maybe we're captivated by his teaching. As long as he doesn't teach for too long or too much, because that's a little bit challenging, isn't it, sometimes? Lots of people hanging on his every word and then walked away. Some we know, I've been there, spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, hard heart, stubborn mind. I think for us and for people that we know are like that, the answer, the calling is to pray, pray, pray. These scales don't come off. These ears are not unplugged unless it's a sovereign act of God. My careful arguing isn't going to get anyone in the kingdom unless the Holy Spirit is doing the work in their lives. In our Bible passage for today, Jesus was passing through. Jesus was heading for Jerusalem. Jesus was focused on going to Jerusalem. Jesus knew what he was going to in Jerusalem. That would have fixed his attention, but people wanted to have something to do with him. I'm surprised that he noticed Zacchaeus or even would give him the time of day. He's probably all the things, certainly, that the religious authorities despised. And maybe what we despise sometimes. Like he was a wealthy man. His name indicates that he is a Jew. I didn't know this. Needed to look it up. What does Zacchaeus mean? Does anyone know here? Because you'll put me to shame. Ah, I'm suddenly feeling very, very smug. But I did have to look it up. Um, here we go. Zacchaeus means pure. 
innocent. Now that's a laugh, isn't it? He was quite the reverse. But maybe the laughing thing is that maybe God has called us by name, has a special name for us, has a special calling for us, that if folks heard what that was, they might laugh too. Zacchaeus was hated by the Jews, possibly one of their own, a traitor amongst them, a chief tax collector. And in their terms, you could change tax collector for sinner, a chief of sinners. He was a man of power and influence. Others were working for him. His money, his way of life, and his friendship groups effectively had spiritual hooks in him, potentially. Uh, potentially, these hooks and cords would have bound him and pulled him away from wanting to have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm surprised that Zacchaeus was interested, like he had quite a lot to lose. But we discover that the power of these things were nothing in comparison to the power and the love that he found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did um, Zacchaeus have social and spiritual reasons from keeping a bit of a distance from the Lord Jesus Christ, he had a slight other problem as well, which I'm a bit embarrassed to share with you, but he was uh, vertically challenged. Like, I don't know about sycamore fig trees, but they need to have some low branches if he's going to get up there, is what I'm picturing in my mind. But when he gets to hear that Jesus is coming, and he wasn't going to be able to see in the crowd, and he wasn't going to be able to buy a golden front row ticket to be able to see, because no one liked him. They weren't going to let him to the front, were they? Then he needed to get ahead. And what's so impressive is he's very resourceful, isn't he? And he runs ahead and he gets up this tree. And another thought, this probably won't help you this morning, but um, those of you that are expert shoppers that go around the supermarket and probably resent it, well, the supermarkets make it very easy for you to buy the right products, don't they? There's something about product placement. And if you were trying to sell me something, where wouldn't you put the product? Probably where I have to stoop down a long way to get it. Or maybe look up a little bit too high. So with that in mind, Jesus focused going along. The fact that he ever know I don't know how high sycamore fig trees are, but they're a little bit higher than the crowd, that I can say. But he must have looked up, mustn't he? And he says, come down immediately. I must go to your house. So there's something about the Lord noticing. I want to suggest that Zacchaeus had a deep, deep desire to meet with Jesus. And this proved to be his salvation. He was resourceful. He was determined. And I like to suggest a little bit undignified, skipping along, getting to the tree first and climbing up the tree. How undignified 
would you get to have a face-to-face encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus could have easily missed him. Verse 5, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. I'm challenged by the swift, enthusiastic response of Zacchaeus. Now, I know with some things with the Lord, we have to wait patiently and all this, that and the other. But there are also things that require us to be a little bit snappy because if we don't respond to the promptings, we've missed the moment. I imagine Jesus is similarly on my case from time to time, on your case from time to time. So I I suppose a question, what are the immediate things that the Lord's calling you and I to do? Well, this caused outrage. Verse 7, people began to mutter, mutter, mutter. Doesn't he realize he's gone to the house of a sinner? Imagine all that those people despising and and sort of hating on him. But quite remarkably, verse 8, Zacchaeus says, he stands up and says, I imagine him doing it really boldly. Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I cheated anyone out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Now, my bank balance is probably not healthy enough to make this pledge. But imagine if I'd wronged you and needed to pay back four times. Imagine if I'd wronged you and needed to pay back four times. And I could go on and on and on. I suspect in that community, if he was the chief tax collector, he or one of his um, team had wronged everyone. Do the maths. This was going to be really, really costly. This was true repentance. This is costly discipleship. Jesus says, verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Just a couple of things. And it seems to hang on, on salvation, this relationship that Jesus is offering. And salvation is us receiving Jesus' unmerited grace, having our sins washed completely clean. In um, 1 John 1 verse 9, Jesus' promises that anyone who confesses their sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think that's amazing. But it got me thinking, maybe I'd be wasting my time preaching this message to the 1130 congregation because pretty much everyone knows what salvation is and has probably received it. So what's the point of even listening to Patrick this morning? And you may think, well, there could be just one or maybe two or maybe more people here this morning, that like me, was playing hard to get. Or you fancy playing that roulette wheel thing, and I'm going to leave it to the last minute. And I'm going to say to you, no, the Lord would like you to 
respond immediately to this call. But then I got thinking, yeah, it's important what we've been saved from, our past, our selfishness. But this is a message, therefore, for everyone. Surely it's equally as important, if not more important, for you to reflect on what you're saved for or to. Because God loves us so much, he's got a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us. And for some of us, that's going to look a little bit different than it did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever. But the central call is relationship, it is fellowship. And even if what you do, metaphorically speaking, is just gaze into the Lord's eyes for the rest of your earthly life here, then that wouldn't be such a bad call, would it? I suspect he's calling you to do so much more. I was praying with someone this morning who's grieving that their, their children do not know the Lord. And we cried out to him together for the children. Surely we can pray at the very least, even if we're not mobile and active. The Son of Man, verse 10, came to seek and save the lost. Just a little bit of an aside, Jesus identifies him as a son of Abraham. I think Zacchaeus was probably Jewish. Um, That's what the commentaries say. I wouldn't have known that. It's a Hebrew name. Um, So they were children of Abraham. He sort of slightly squandered his birthright. There's a bit of the prodigal going on here, I imagine, and sided with the other side. But whether he's from Jewish heritage or not, the invitation to all of us is to be in the same family line. And Zacchaeus, born in that bloodline, maybe, or us, are still called to be sons of the father of faith. And that requires faith and not human effort. It's in God's gift and not ours. Anyway, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Verse 10, and his call is come down immediately. Just indulge me for a few moments. I want you to imagine um, that, um, this is me speculating, that Zacchaeus' response was, I can't fold my hands, but it's no. Turn his back. Not interested. Go away. Imagine that he didn't run ahead, didn't climb that tree, didn't come down when Jesus looked at him, and didn't offer hospitality in the home. Imagine that his salvation was a little bit flimsy and thin and it made absolutely no impression on his life, no desire um, to mend relationships or to do anything that was restorative, uh, making restitution. And just sort of reflecting on this, like there's lots of steps, aren't there, along the way in people coming to meet with Jesus. And maybe we've got a few people who've put a few barriers up along the way that we need to help them to pull down, or we need to pray that they don't get in the way, and the yearning within that the Lord plants and not us to meet with him would be very, very strong indeed. With Jesus, no one is overlooked. God calls us by name.
like Zacchaeus, Jesus wants to come not just to our house and our home, but into our hearts and into our minds. So what are we being called to do? And there could be a whole range of different responses to this. But can I just suggest that it would be unwise to keep our distance, unwise to stay up the sycamore fig tree, unwise um, to dare to know when we're going to breathe our last breath and put off that commitment, that surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the image of hosting the Lord. I don't know what that looks like for you. I love the idea that, yes, we've been saved from something, but what is it that we've been saved for? What's God's plan and purpose in your life for giving you life and breath? The Lord invites us to give a whole life response. What are you saved for?